Good morning. I have a few thoughts before we get uh, into the service this morning. First, I want to say Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Um, I guess you would just have to use your imagination as you have through this quarantine, I'm sure, and we are extending you a virtual carnation this morning. We would have handed it to you if we were having worship. And uh, we did, however, uh, send in our donation to Maine Right to Life. We continue to support the pro-life cause and initiative. And that's where we get our carnation. So maybe when we get back together, we'll buy you some flowers. But anyway, happy Mother's Day to you moms. Uh, secondly, we do see a light at the end of the tunnel. It may be a glimmer, but it is a light at the end of the tunnel. We are making plans to reopen worship. We can't say definitively when that's going to be, but we're talking about it, we're planning for it, and I just want to let you know that when we know something, when it's definitive, we will let you know. Uh, we'll let you know when, we'll let you know how, we'll try to keep you informed of what changes we have to make in order to gather together. Uh, we're keeping an eye on the numbers, and I suspect you are as well, but we hope to gather again relatively soon. Uh, thirdly, a couple of weeks ago, Amy sent out an email, and in that email, she shared some of what the Lord was teaching her during this time. And she encouraged you folks to think that through and maybe write something down, I think, as I recall. And I want to second that. I, wanna, I, I don't want us to waste this time. I think the Lord is speaking to a lot of people uh, during these weeks away. And I'm going to encourage you to ponder it and pray through it and maybe even record some of it because at some point for those who are willing not trying to scare you to death but for those who are willing uh, your testimony will be part of our worship as we move forward so think it through if God has spoken to you if you have learned some lessons I want to ask you to prayerfully consider being willing to share those lessons with us finally um, some of you have already done this, and uh, I hope some of, more of you will. Even though this is an odd time, and I know it's a time that some people would rather forget than remember, uh, we're going to commemorate it somehow, some way. Um, and I'd like to, if you're willing, for you to take a picture of you during your family worship. Uh, wherever you are, however you're doing this, um, I trust your good taste. Take a picture. Uh, and, and keep that uh, on file, or you can even forward it to the office if you'd like. We're going to compile, uh, we're going to compile these pictures, and we're going to have some record of our quarantine worship. Quarantine, quarantine, well, well, whatever it is. It is what it is. Who knows what it is. Anyway, um, got somebody here today I think you're going to be interested to see. He's doing well. And uh, prayerfully, uh, you're going to be interested not only to see him, but to hear from him. Pastor Mike is here this morning. He's going to lead us in a prayer of praise. Good morning. Good to be back in this building for sure. And it's good to be back before you, even though it's virtually. Um, it's still a blessing to be Part of this congregation, and uh, the Lord wills, we will be back together soon, I pray. Just ask that you uh, lift your heads and hearts with me this morning as we pray to the Lord. Father, there are no words to express 
the sorrow we feel every time we break your heart. The guilt and the shame are overwhelming. Lord, we need your touch right now. Lord, it makes us feel so sick when we know that we are saved and born again. And still we do the things, the things, the things that we know. Just like Paul, we're conflicted. In Romans 7, Paul says, I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate, I do. We are so sorry. We ask for your forgiveness right now. Father, we have some hard layers around our hearts. Layers that need to be peeled away. Father, we pray that you give us the hearts of flesh. The hardness is a barrier between us and between you, Lord. And it's a hardness that we cannot stand on our own. We love you, and we are so regrettably sorry for our selfish. Thank you for your forgiveness. Without forgiveness, we are nothing. With your forgiveness, we are made whole. Lord, there are times when we can't seem to shake the harm that's been done to us. We wallow in our anger, the anger that we feel towards others. Lord, we shouldn't think the vengeful thoughts that we do. You've called us to forgive every single person that has wronged us. We need your strength to overcome these trespasses against us. Father, we want to forgive these people. Please cast the devil's evil ways far from us. We want to look at these people and see lost souls that need you. We want to forgive them completely so that you can use us however you wish, maybe to be Jesus to them. Father, we are done with holding these grudges. Forgive us for holding on to them. We cast this burden at the foot of your throne. Do with us as you please, Father. We love you and thank you for being patient with us. Why do you forgive us? As James says, we shout praises with you, to you when we sing worship. And with the same tongue, we curse others who are made in your image. Why do you forgive us? We say that we love you and we still keep on sinning. Why do you forgive us? We spend time in prayer thanking you for the blessings and then we refuse to bless others. We read our Bibles when we make time for it. Then we spend our time looking and reading things that are potentially offensive. To you. 
Why do you forgive us? We praise Jesus for his death on the cross and the atonement of our sins. And then we nail him to it again and again when we trespass against you. Compassion and grace and the mercy that flow from you is absolutely amazing. We love you for it. You forgave us. Because you love us. May we learn to love you more every day. Every day of our lives. And never take your love for granted. Lord, our hearts grieve for those close to us. That do not want to know you. They are lost souls wandering wherever the devil takes them. They are fulfilling their own desire of the flesh instead of yearning for the life that only you can provide. Father, use us to show Christ-like love to them. We pray that the seeds that you have planted in their lives, you will make them grow. You make miracles happen every day. And we pray that you continue to make those miracles happen this day. Praise your hope. Lord, you tell us in your word, we have not because we ask not. Today we ask. Just as Job continually offered burnt offerings to you for the forgiveness of his children, we are praying for the forgiveness of our children. Only you know what they have done. They've sinned against you. We pray that you would forgive. We pray that they would seek repentance to make things right with you. If there is any sin that needs to be forgiven, we pray that you would soften their hearts and bring them safely into your arms with grace and mercy. We thank you for the unlimited love and the forgiveness that you have shown for, for us. Lord, you are all-powerful. Our country needs you right now. We pray for our leaders and the government, Lord. They also have power, though it is limited. I pray that they would use their positions wisely. For you are the one who has allowed them to lead us. You have established their places. We need strong men and women of faith in these roles. I pray that our men and women in authority will strive to live godly lives to repent when necessary if there is any corruption. I pray that our leaders would repent and ask for forgiveness so that our country doesn't fall. We know that you hold it in your hand. We ask that you watch over it. I thank you for our leaders and pray for their safety and their morals in their lives. And this time, oh, I'm... In this time and through this time and forevermore, we love you, Father. In the precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Mike. What do you do when a fellow believer sins against you? How about a repeat offender? How many times do I forgive someone 
who wrongs me. That's what Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, wants to know. That's basically the question that he asks of the Lord in the context of a larger conversation that was happening between Jesus and his disciples toward the end of Christ's earthly ministry. It was a given for Peter and for anyone who was vaguely familiar with the Jewish law or Jewish tradition that forgiveness was expected when somebody transgressed. But Peter wants to put a finer point on the matter. Yes, forgiveness, we get it. We're supposed to forgive, but how much forgiveness? How many times do I have to forgive someone? He throws out a number that he thinks probably is generous. Seven times? And that is generous, isn't it, when you think of it? Especially for folks who like to write people off after the first offense. We have a saying, don't we? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. A lot of us don't like getting bit by the same dog twice. We certainly don't want to get bit by that dog seven times. So, yes, Peter throws out a generous number. There seems to have been some rabbinic wisdom floating around in that day as well that actually did say how many times one was obligated to forgive. You might be eager to know the number. It was three. First time, yes, forgive. Second time, yes, forgive. Third time, okay, go ahead and forgive. Fourth time, you don't have to forgive. Three strikes and you're out. And so Peter probably thought that he was being super kind in these moments. He might have even thought that he was being kind of super spiritual to toss out a number here that's more than double the accepted wisdom. He probably feels pretty good about himself and the number that he proposes until Jesus shatters it. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus takes two numbers that symbolize completeness and he multiplies them. And then he adds on top of that the perfect number again. And just in case it's not obvious, and it may not be, Jesus is not setting for us the outer limit on forgiveness as 77 or 490 actually, depending on the translation that you're reading. You needn't be concerned, by the way, if you're reading something that says 70 times 7, which is how some translators have translated that phrase, or 77 times. You don't have to worry about this because the number is figurative. It's not literal. It suggests infin infinity. It suggests uh, times without number. Jesus tells a story to illustrate his point and to answer Peter's question, and this is the parable of the unforgiving debtor, or the parable of the unmerciful servant, depending on the heading that's in your Bible. You can find it in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 23 to 35, so take a moment and turn there if you haven't read that scripture yet. Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35. Let me pray. Father, as we prepare again to sit under your word, we ask almost repetitively that you might minister to us through it. 
God, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds. That you would speak to us and that we would be sensitive to what you have to say. Lord, that we would receive your word in our hearts. And that it would change us. Because we know that we need to be changed. And we know the kind of change you propose is what is good and what is best. So bless us, Father, as we open your word, as we seek to understand. Guide us by your Holy Spirit into your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the parable of the unforgiving debtor unfolds, if you look at it, in three different acts. The main character is in Act 1, are a king and a servant of his who owes him a lot of money. The scripture says a servant owed the king 10,000 talents. That doesn't mean anything to you, does it? It doesn't mean anything to me. We don't deal in talents these days. That's language that just doesn't resonate. But it was a large, large sum of money. And Jesus' hearers would know immediately that this debt is astronomical. The talent is the largest uh, unit, the largest denomination in the monetary system of that day. And King Herod, right, in all of his glory, collected less than 1,000 talents a year in revenue from his entire kingdom. So this is a monstrous amount of money that is owed. It's the kind of debt that is racked up by countries. And so you might, on hearing that then, begin to wonder how on earth does an individual in that day compile a debt totaling millions of dollars? How does that even happen? And what was this guy doing to incur that kind of debt? And what was this king up to if if a debt of that size could be happening under his nose and he doesn't even notice until it's time for him to settle accounts. How wealthy is this king? All those thoughts go through our heads, or at least they go through my head. But you know what? That's a runaway train. Those thoughts happen sometimes when we listen to parables, when we read parables, and, and we kind of call those rabbit trails. We forget that parables are stories concocted for the purpose of making a point. So what's important to realize here is that this servant debtor owes a massive sum to the king, which despite his best intentions, he can never, ever repay. So the king orders his whole family and everything he owned to be sold in order to recoup some of that debt. When he heard this from the king, it was more than he could bear. So the servant, in humility, dropped to his knees. The King James Version says that he worshipped. He, he literally knelt down, or even fell down, is what the word means, before the king in reverence, and he pleaded with him. He pleaded for patience. Please, don't give up on me. Please, don't send me away. Please, don't separate me from everything that I hold near and dear. Please, be patient with me, and I'll pay you. Most Near Eastern kings that we have read about weren't known for their patience. And even fewer would tolerate being disrespected. 
So here's another attention grabber in Jesus' parable. Here's another twist. The king pardons the servant debtor. He had pity for him. He had compassion on him. And he released this great debtor. And he forgave this great debt. He cleared the man's account. And for all intents and purposes, he gave him his life back. He declared him to be debt-free. And that's the close of the first act. When the lights come up on Act 2, we see this newly liberated servant debtor. We can call him Servant Debtor 1. He's on a mission. Like his master before him, Servant Debtor 1 is seeking to settle accounts. He finds one of his colleagues, a fellow servant of the gracious king, and this man owes him a sum of money. This character we can call Servant Debtor 2. That's how that would be listed if you had a theater program. Servant Debtor 2. We have 1 and 2. Servant Debtor 2 owes Servant Debtor 1 100 denarii. Now, that's not a small amount. It's way, way smaller than 10,000 talents. It is a pittance compared to 10,000 talents, but it's still not an insignificant amount of money to someone like you or someone like me. Remember from the parable of the workers in the vineyard, we heard that a denarius was a fair day's wage. And so we're, we're talking here about 100 days' wages. We're talking about money for a little over three months' worth of work. And in our currency, that would add up to several thousand dollars. So it's not a tiny amount. And in the second, amount, second act, we see the beginning of a replay. A debtor stands before the lender. But this scene goes in a very different direction than the last one. Instead of being gracious, servant debtor one is violent. He grabs his colleague by the throat and he chokes him which is a life-threatening act of force if there ever was one, and he demands to be paid back. Well, there is no question that he is owed the money, that the money is owed to him and he ought to have the money, but how? How could he, a recipient of such lavish mercy, be so insistent now on this harsh and immediate justice? Just as he had done a little while earlier, servant debtor too drops to his knees in reverence. He acknowledges the debt. And like servant debtor one in the last act, he too implores his lender, be patient with me, please be patient with me, and I will repay you. But the note holder here will have no part of patience. He orders servant debtor two into prison until he can pay him back. And you might be wondering, who on earth can pay back a debt if they're in prison? That seems like a silly strategy. But this is really just his way of forcing the friends and the loved ones of this fellow servant to come up with the cash in order to bail him out. It is very clear that servant debtor one cares more about getting what is owed to him than he does about the life and livelihood of servant debtor two. But in the background of act two, in the shadows, while all this is going on, 
are other servants of the king. And they witness this beat down. And they are deeply grieved by the ruthless behavior that they see. And as the scene ends, the fellow servants slip away to report to their master all they have observed. And that is the end of the second act. The lights come up on the third and final scene in this parable play. Act three. How will it resolve? The king and servant debtor one are center stage. And the king is not happy. He speaks to the one on whom he had previously had compassion. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you have had, not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. In his anger, the king delivers servant debtor one over to the jailers, and he does to him what this man had just done to his brother. He treats him the same way, by the same standard, that this man had just treated his fellow servant. It is at this point that Jesus pulls us out of the story abruptly with a very personal application. He says to his disciples, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And with that, Jesus has not only answered the question, What do I do when a brother sins against me? How many times should I forgive someone? But he has also told us, why? We are to forgive, beloved, because we have been forgiven. And if we refuse to forgive, we won't be forgiven. One of the more condemning phrases in the entire world is, I will never forgive. And then you fill in the blank. Earlier in his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something very similar to this in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is serious business. And we are meant to take notice. James Montgomery Boyce, in his sermon on this parable, titled, A Wretched Man's Wretched End, proclaimed, the conclusion is, if we do not forgive, we are not forgiven. We are not justified. We are not God's children, regardless of what our profession may be. You see, granting forgiveness proves that we are children of God. And holding back on forgiveness calls any such claims into question. Another way to say this is holding grudges, harboring hurts, nursing resentments, and refusing to forgive others is simply incompatible with being a Christian. Jesus' teaching here is simple and it's profound in its simplicity. We needn't make more of it 
than there is. We run the risk of missing the point if we add too much to it, in fact. But here's what it is. Everyone who has experienced God's forgiveness must be ready to forgive anyone who has sinned against them and do so sincerely from the heart and repeatedly as necessary. I want to encourage you this morning. If you are struggling with the idea of granting forgiveness, not to despair. If you have heard these words and thought, my goodness, I have some business to tend to, then good. And if they have made you unsettled or uneasy because you know that you have been holding on to hurts and harboring grudges and have been reluctant to forgive, then good. I understand that it's daunting at this point maybe for you to think about being able to forgive, but the scripture says that you must. And I want to assure you that with God's help, you absolutely can. Not only can you, but I would say for your good, and for his glory, as a child of God, you must. Our plan for next week is to continue the exploration of the topic of forgiveness by looking at the parable of two debtors that you'll find in Luke's gospel in the seventh chapter. That's our plan. Something that we have noticed, I think, during this time away is that all plans are subject to change. But at some point, and hopefully that will be next week, we will take a look at why we sometimes struggle to forgive. We will keep this parable in mind, and we will look at the parable in Luke chapter 7 of two, two debtors, and we will contemplate why it is sometimes that we struggle to forgive, and we'll look at how we can get better at it. I want to leave off today with these words of the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 32. This is a fitting benediction. This is absolutely a hint of what is to come, Lord willing, next week. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, as God in Christ has forgiven you.